Yes. Hey, welcome back to Super Tell the Podcast. I'm Marnie, here with my super sister Blaze. Yo, what's up? And today we're tilting into some phenomenal ideas and paradigms. Now we're thrilled to share this convo with y'all today. And who we're chatting to is the simply sublime human Charles Michel. Mm, Charles is, well, He's everything. He's a geoflexible philomath studying and creating and sharing at the convergence of art, science, community, entrepreneurship, and multi-sensory aesthetics. He's inspiring solutions for key challenges across the human food environment relatio, working on cutting edge projects, innovating in the ways humans relate to each other and to mama nature. Mm-hmm. Now, Charles has published dozens of papers on cross-modal sensory perception over his time at Oxford University inside the Department of Experimental Psychology. Sounds juicy. And he recently starred as a master chef in the Netflix Final Table series, which he even journeyed to Little Aotearoa, New Zealand for. So in this chat, we traverse the delicious topics of regenerative food system design and our disconnection to food, indigenous wisdom, food literacy, blockchain and food supply chains, food sovereignty and universal basic nutrition. We also discuss the sacred art of eating and the evolution of the humble fork and, of course, the power of community. Honestly, he's amazing. Let's go. Kia ora, hola. Hey, hey, beautiful people. We're actually tuning in to Bogota today from Aotearoa to Bogota. True story. It's happening 3,000 meters up in the Andes. And we at Supertilt are so jazzed to be dropping in with Charles Michel, who is a, a Colombian-French food educator and food activist, actually, and also many strings to the bow, being experienced designer and community catalyst with a background in culinary arts, experimental psychology, and human-centered design, just to a few things out there. Woo. <laughs> so Blaze and I have been tracking Charles around the world. Actually, last time we caught up was, gosh, United Nations Climate Week 2019, which was just a lifetime ago, basically. So now here we are <laughs> being enchanted by the tech that's connecting us and just so, so happy to be talking to you. Welcome. Welcome, Charles. <laughs> hey, Blaise and, and Marnie. So, so happy to be sharing this this time with you and yeah, appreciate what the work that you do and how you're doing it and super excited for this conversation. Amazing. Same, same here. So let's let's tilt into it. Context setting. I mean, you're up in the Andes right now. You have been, despite, I guess, relative travel restrictions, you, you have been bopping around quite frequently <laughs> in the recent months to all sorts of interesting spots and continuing your mission. So, I mean, let's just start there. Like, how did you realize that your core mission was around food systems and food values and food literacy and all of that that's wrapped up in that world. Well, I think the first thing that came to light as a you know as a kid was that food was a universal language. Like we all speak dance, we all speak music, we all speak beauty, 
We all speak food as humans, right? It is a common trait of all humans. And in, in such kind of tumultuous times that we are living and historical times, I mean, let's not forget that we're for the first time being able to, to understand what it means to be human with the lens of technology in a way that never before any, any human could ever dream of, right? And so this ontological awakening, this like resignification of what it means to be human, you know, food plays a fundamental role in it, right? Especially because food is the most intimate connection we have with nature, if we think about it. The most intimate connection we have with our bodies is actually beyond the air that we breathe. It's the food that we put inside of our bodies, right? It's the most intimate connection. And so maybe if I were born in another century, I would have had a different angle on, on, on my passions. But in these times, after doing research in, in, for my passion for food techniques, right? Uh, I consider myself a food technician, not a, not a chef. I, I went deep into the rabbit hole of understanding that, working in Michelin star restaurants, etc. And so developing this kind of craft and, and sensibility to basically interpret the beauty of nature in the form of food experience, uh, and then getting into experimental psychology, where I understood a bit better not only how science works in itself, which was one of my passions as a kid, but also really understanding how our brain, our minds perceive the world around us through the integration of sensory uh, information that come together in food, in flavor, like in no other human experience. If you think about it, food is the only experience that our bodies are evolved to perceive with all our senses, right? A lot of our brain from an evolutionary mm -hmm. perspective is devoted to flavor perception, only comparable to kind of the other thing that's essential for life, which is mating, right? Sex, right? So these two, food and sex, kind of are, are at the basis of our biology and our decision-making and our instincts and our emotions. And both of those things have been kind of almost, we've been disconnected, right, from, from this untethered, from, from the realities and the wisdom of this sensual connection to nature around us and food being that vector and, and also kind of the, the deeper kind of interpersonal relations and, and, and love and, and, you know, that and, and sexual connection that is really kind of at the core of, of human relations. So, yeah, I guess the passion for food is a passion for community as well. It's a passion for living a good life, living in balance. And that is where I've kind of landed in this past years to be a food activist because there's a lot of injustice and a lot of injustice stems and manifests around food injustice. And, uh, and so there's a lot of work to do there in terms of activism. And uh, I feel that we live in, a, in an illiterate world when it comes to food. If you think about it, we teach, you know, we aim to teach most humans how to read and write as a, as a tool for empowerment. But most of us on this planet don't, don't have the basic education to know how to feed ourselves. And if you think about it, if you don't know how to cook, you'll never be truly independent because you will always depend on someone else to feed you. And that is, I think, a key aspect of human empowerment, right? Is to learn food, learn the language of food as an essential thing, just as essential as reading and writing and counting. So yeah, that's a bit of, a, of an intro to, I guess, my, my world and mind and heart. <laughs> mm, wow. That just strikes such a chord. Yes. It's beautiful. Yes, absolutely. Gosh, there's there's a few things that you're hitting on there. One of them being that, as you're saying, it's like that base, that basis of biology, basis of humanity, mm. basically, and the Food wisdom. Food, sex, money, water, base <laughs> needs. And the essential connection that 
taps also like super powerfully into indigenous wisdom. And mm. I guess what have you been actually seeing on that front in, in terms of also considering how many places you have traveled around the world and how many communities you've tapped into and the contrasting food value systems, depending mm. on these locations, like what are you most excited slash yeah, motivated by in terms of really tapping into the indigenous food wisdom side? Mm, absolutely. So I know exactly where I want to go with that, with that question, but I'm trying to think how to best get to it. So, this, so we live in a very contrasted world, right? Some of us on this planet, you know, we could say like a couple billion of us have more than more food than we need. We, we never experience hunger unless it is something that we kind of willingly kind of create for ourselves during fasting or things like that. That's about, you know, I would say a fourth of the population has uh, the privilege of having enough food on their plates on a daily basis, right? And hence, we're kind of disconnected from hunger in the sense that hunger is a very important drive for human behavior. If the three of us here were, were, hadn't eaten in two days, we wouldn't be thinking about you know, having this conversation. We would be just trying to figure out how to get our food, right? Our basic instincts would just be focused 100% on where are we going to eat next and what, are we, how, what, we, what do we do? Crisis, panic, right? Think about the, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Not all of us have the privilege to self-realize and to, you know, to, to transcend, let's say, right? So first of all, there's a sense of privilege there. Half of the world, and I would say like a third of the world is, is diametrically opposed. Part of it is, let's say a billion suffers from malnutrition, meaning that they, they have enough food, but because of a, a poor food system design, we are basically eating too much of unhealthy ingredients and we're dying because we're having too much. And where like our bodies cannot take that type of diet, and a, a billion of, of people on, on Earth do not have access to to a daily basis of food, and so like we all come from different parts, right? But there's one kind of unequivocal truth that I see in, in indigenous ancestral uh, wisdom, First Nation wisdom all over the world, is that always you will come to food. And you would see and treat food with reverence, with respect. Mm -hmm. Water is sacred. Water is life. Water is the matrix of life, right? Mm. And that is the most basic food after the air we breathe. And then every single time you approach, you know, the, the harvesting of food, the sacrificing of an animal, and even the sacrificing of a plant, to be honest, because there is life, yes. there is a certain form of consciousness, right? And we sacrifice mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that. And so what does, what does sacrifice mean? Food requires sacrifice. The time that you invest in growing your food, the time that you invest in having a job so you can have money, so you can spend that money in buying your food so you can feed your family, right? It is a sacrifice. Whenever something is sacrificed, it becomes sacred. And that's where I want to land with, with you, your question. The first thought that came to mind is food is sacred. And we have forgotten why because we live in, a, in abundance, especially those of us of the, of the lucky third or the lucky few of this planet who have enough food on their plates, enough healthy food on their plates on a daily basis, right? And, and, and so that's, that's kind of, a, I think, the, the main insight that I've gathered from, from, from seeing the world, the, the lens that I've been able to see is that whenever you reach wisdom, wherever it is in the world, food is sacred, yeah, beautiful. I wonder where in the world has mm, inspired or impressed you the most in terms of really integrative food system design and also pairing that with 
absolute respect and absolutely uh, and the sacred mm. element. Well, I'm glad you asked. It's 100% the experiences I've lived in the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta, which is actually not called Sierra Nevada. That's a colonial name. It's called Gonaguindua. It's this uh, mountain that climbs up to 5,900 meters, right? So that's, uh, what, 18,000 feet high mountain, 30 kilometers away from the Caribbean in the north of Colombia. Four tribes live on this mountain, and they've been living in original ways since, you know, since the birth of time in their cosmovision, in their belief system. They have always been there. And I've had the chance since 2010 to, to be in contact with and have friends that are from these uh, communities, particularly the Iku people, the Arwako people. And I've had the chance to be in their homes, um, living with them for days at a time, sometimes weeks. And there's a prayer that goes when a coward comes out of the earth. There's a prayer that goes when, and a gratitude that comes when one takes the egg of the hen. There is a prayer that goes when these things are being mixed. And, and, you know, and I had the, one of the most delicious meals I've had in my life is this indigenous woman grating carrots and then putting some eggs on top and making these scrambled eggs with carrots. And I, I, I kid you not, the intensity <gasps> oh of the flavor and the purity yeah. of the flavor of just eggs and a carrot that were just harvested from the earth with a gratitude prayer was the most delicious thing I've ever eaten. And, and inquiring in their cosmovision, so right? inquiring in how they, 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 they live with that. And certain plants should only be touched by women, certain plants only by men. And sometimes it's men put the seeds and women harvest. And, and, and there's a whole kind of sense that this has been really well thought through for centuries, if not millennia. And they have come to a simplicity of being that is just so human that no human cannot be in reverence in front of an experience of eating like uh, as they do. And they also say that uh, we are not civilized. We, by, I mean, the, the, the younger brothers, that's how they called it, that called us. They call us Bunachu, which is that uh, the people who do not live on the mountain and are not indigenous, white people. Oh. And uh, they say that we are not civilized because the civilized human lives in harmony with nature. And hence, they say that we are not civilized yet, that we're trying to mm. strive for that. So for me, the most impeccable food system is a food system where technology has not touched yet. And I think there's a lot of, that we can, a lot of magic, literally, that can happen if we use the best of technology, but with that understanding that we do not need technology in order to be in right relationship with each other and nature. Fascinating. What a interesting dichotomy there. And on that note, with, mm. with you saying, well, let's let's use the best of, of technology, what in your mind right now could add a a valuable layer, not just for the sake of it, not just for the sake of freaking whatever new tech buzzword is out there, but that can really benefit. Mm, especially coupled with the demands of our food system that are just increasing and increasing. Yeah, absolutely. I think the most interesting one is the one we're using right now, communications technology. We are speaking at the speed of, I mean, the information that we're exchanging right now is flying at almost the speed of light. And we are literally on, you know, opposite sides of the planet. And we are able to do something that might have only been a dream before, which is basically to communicate telepathically through a device, <laughs> right? This is what's happening right now. Like you both are, your voices is in my head right now, right? Through multiple wireless mm -hmm. devices. And I think communications technologies are the most simple, the most pervasive, and the most 
hard to grasp. Noam Chomsky said that technology in itself is not inherently good or bad. Technology is like a hammer. You can use it to build a house or to crush somebody's head. And you have the choice. You are, like technology is just an extension of your body, right? And it's up to what you choose to do with it. So I would say that no technology is bad in essence, but the one that I think has most potential, especially for food systems, and we can talk about it later when we reach kind of conversations around deeper food systems or kind of more concrete food systems uh, conversation that we need to leverage these technologies that allow us to, you know, uh, exchange information for good. And, uh, and mm. sometimes it's more of a distraction than actually a tool for change. Totally. Have you found that with your Patreons? Like, has that been a powerful experience in terms of oh, yeah. global education? Absolutely. I mean, the richness of conversation the depth of conversation that comes when a diverse group of human beings, people from all walks of life, different ages and generations, different ethnicities, the conversation gets, I, I would say, really high, really quick, right? Because we see the, the common humanity in each other. Of course, you have to create safe spaces and circles of trust. An open forum on the internet is not a circle of trust, it's not a safe space. So you need to create this community layer that protects and creates a safe space, just like imagine a hut in a primordial village, uh, human mm -hmm. home, right? Like the hut, you need to create that safe space, that container. And then within that, the more diversity there is, which is something that we're able to do today with traveling, travel technologies and communication technologies, that we are able to, to reach this level of conversation. One dear friend once said, we were around a table and part of this uh, community called Sandbox, and we kind of gathered all together from different parts of the world. And a friend, a Mexican friend said, do you realize that around this table, there is more nationalities, more you know, richness and wisdom than any king or queen has had access to in the past? Like 200 years ago, a queen or a king could not have the amount of diversity on their tables and around their tables than we have access today, which means that we are inherently like, rich in the mm. access that we have to this, this diversity of thought and of produce that we have access to since, um, you know, the 19th and 20th century and the industrial revolution. Wow. That's a, that's a mm. great wake up <laughs> reminder. Oh my goodness. To we have, we have at our fingertips, we have it up yeah. right here, right now. I mean, I'd love to, I'd love to tap into where you see ethical consumption actually going then back looping back to your point around food activism, like where is the future heading in that respect? Like hmm. over the next 10 years, say, let's, let's take that trajectory. Yeah. What could ethical yeah, love actually hmm. look like? Yeah. Well, first of all, a word on ethics, and I don't want to get too philosophical. I want to do, break it down to earth as well, but a word on ethics. Ethics are based on a system of, of values and morals. And I think that in order to be aligned on what ethical means, we need to first agree on what value systems we are basing this ethics on. And we have a moral crisis right now. And I don't think it's kind of an evil produced crisis. It's just a crisis of youth. I want to believe that humans are inherently good and we're inherently here on this planet and in this you know, <laughs> singularity of a planet with all this amazing diversity of life in this universe. We're here for good. We're not here for evil, right? So I want to believe that. But at the core, we don't have yet a system of values that integrates nature 
within the moral system, apart from indigenous cultures, of course. Mm. I'm saying that modern science, I'm talking about international law, I'm talking about many things that still see us humans. And I would even say like some modern religions. And when I say modern, I say the past few millennia, right? Especially monotheistic religions do not necessarily take into account that the earth has rights, that the stones have a right to be there where they are, that trees breathe, and that we must integrate that within our system of morals, values, to then define what ethical means. So, and, and New Zealand has been incredibly inspiring to me in seeing how y'all have given rights to a river, right? You were the first ones. <laughs> yes, uh, you literally I, read our mind. Right? That is exactly what we were just <laughs> thinking, yes. Absolutely. And that's beautiful. And that needs to be completely, you know, that's the way to go. Now, when we realize that all life has a right to be and has rights, we can talk about legal systems that are much more ethical. And then we can talk about ethics. Now, okay, I don't want to open that Pandora's box. Just kind of (laughs) want to bring it back down to earth in terms of future food and your question, what does it mean to eat ethically in the coming decade? So I've had the chance in the past decade and especially in the past five years to, you know, be invited to give talks on the future of food and talk about multisensory design and talk about how to tap into pleasure systems of the body to uh, guide people towards more healthier consumptions for them and for the planet. And I've got been exposed to a lot of technologies and stuff. But then I do have to say that the elephant in the room is that there's still people starving in the earth. And we're trying sometimes to solve issues with the wrong lens, in my personal opinion. So I do think that all the solutions that are available to us are all needed, you know, whether it is a change in, you know, materials for better packaging that eventually does not stay on the planet for, you know, 200 years before it's, you know, degraded and, and thinking of plastics, right? And how we use plastics and how we relate to that material in particular for packaging. Uh, and there are solutions there. Also, of course, agricultural tech, you know, biotech in general, you know, there's some really interesting things. I mean, there's also these innovations where we are actually producing proteins from thin air, like this equation, right? Solar energy plus air equals protein powder. That's amazing. Oh my wow. goodness. That's probably going to hit the, the shelves next year or the following. And, you know, it's in experimental phases still and, and fundraising. That's a reality, right? That's a given. But, but that's not a silver bullet. And none, no solution is a silver bullet. And often some solutions are painted by big kind of corporate power. They're, mm-hmm. they're kind of greenwashing a lot, Right. And they're telling you, this is the way we should go. But then you realize, and there's injustice embedded in the system. And we're only, there's solutions, many, that are only trying to treat the symptoms, like putting Band-Aids on stuff. And we're not addressing the root cause. And the root cause is injustice. And it's a broken financial system. And it's really complicated politics. So again, like bringing it back to to where I think it is going in the coming decade, or at least where I would love to, to go, is for us to eventually stop discussing about or not stop, but eventually, you know, instead of UB, instead of UBI, right, universal basic income, we mm-hmm. should be thinking about UBN, universal basic nutrition. What would mm-hmm. it mean if mm-hmm. governments subsidized food systems in a way that you know it wouldn't turn nature into a commodity that exploits and extracts, but that rather we create systems that support and create jobs, and at the same time have an output of nutrients enough to feed everybody and that would be paid by your taxes right and of course you can have the luxury of have some spare income to to get the you know the product from abroad 
and this weird thing and have this amazing chef cook for you. But the basic nutrition should be covered before we give people, you know, an income to spend unwisely, especially because we're talking that we're not going to educate all humanity in a decade. We're going to need three or four to, to make food literacy a reality. It's going to, you know, we need to start with kids now so they can be intelligent consumers in 20, 30 years, right? And so I think UBN is, is, is an idea that I've been you know, increasingly feeling like you know, when we think about world hunger, when we think about this, the truth is that we have enough food for everybody. And, and those who want to make you believe that it's not true, that we need to uh, produce more food and sustainably intensify the production and, and make more food for, to feed 20 billion people or 10 billion people, whatever the, the source of information is by 2050, I think it's, it's a lie that we don't have enough food. We're wasting a third of it, right? And that's producing 8% of global carbon emissions. And so don't, don't come and, and, and we're feeding more animals than we're feeding humans with grains that are perfectly edible for humans. So it's a lie that they want us to believe that we need to produce more food. We need to be clever at managing it, right? And respect natural ecosystems and not destroy our, our future generations' livelihoods because of our, of, our, of our greed and our broken systems. So I think it's really important to, going back to the beginning, think about the values and what really matters, right? To define value systems that can refine our ethics, that can help us really address the big problems. We can only advance as fast as the slowest in the herd. And right now, the slowest in the herd is the people who don't have a nutritious plate in front of them on a daily basis. And that's really slow. I mean, that's mm-hmm. <laughs> that's really dialing it back, isn't it? Well, I love that. So many cross-cutting issues there. And, and what you said about more clever food management systems, I mean, where could tech and let's say Web3 or blockchain plug in here to to progress this in a, in a more positive way. Yeah, I have super high hopes for blockchain. I'm super excited about what's happening in this space. So let's say that one of the notes I took uh, around kind of this question of, of future food and ethical eating, I think we need to, you know, to somehow to kind of create kind of highly productive local diversification food production, right? And it's like a lot of clever sounding words together just to say that we need to, we need to connect to locality. We need to connect to place, and then from that and from the seeds that have evolved for thousands of years in a particular biome, in a particular ecosystem, we need to bring those back and sustainably develop and regeneratively develop their, their culture and educate on what type of seeds and what type of foods are better to use, right? So to get there, I think blockchain will, will help in, in many different ways. And I'm going to kind of just skim through a little bit of the... the what, what, what I see kind of in my panorama. First of all is I think transparency, right? And this is kind of a lot of people talk about this. How can we put in on, on the blockchain, the, the information, the data, make it transparent so we can all manage in a better way, right? And there's of course a lot of AI also that can enter there to just try to understand, but we need to put this information on technology that can allow us to more efficiently manage it. The second thing is, I think, of course, agricultural industry, There's there's a lot there that can that can help, and especially when it comes to value systems and and, uh, and and currencies that can help us, you know, put the real value on food and and, and change and uh, shift away from an economy of commodities, right? Because this is where food is not sacred anymore. Going back to your earlier question, if food is sacred, it shouldn't be a commodity. That makes sense. So I think blockchain can help us 
get there. And also just decentralized food production, just like we are decentralizing finance and uh, and central mm-hmm. bank, like evolving from central banking and, and shifting the economy, which are, like, let's be honest, most of the eels of the world are, are stem from an unfair economical system. I would say an unripe economical system. And we're evolving thanks to the blockchain to a more evolved, a more intelligent way of measuring economic value. And that is going to create a new kind of genre of, of entrepreneurship and, and, and products and services that, that have transparency and decision-making embedded in the design that can allow us to, to just have a fairer food industry. And I think we're, we're only starting to awaken. And there's a lot of here that, I, that I'm not mentioning, but because we could talk for just an hour about this, right? When it comes to supply chain management, reduction of food waste, I mean, more things. But, but there's definitely a lot of exciting things to happen there. Mm, for sure. And let's step sideways into your expertise in multisensory science and the interplay with MR, AR, VR worlds. How do you see this technology positively impacting or improving our rituals around food? Yes, it's, it's something that um, I was really passionate about a few years ago when I was doing the research at Oxford and tried to understand how technology could be of service there. And to be honest, so, so I'm going to go straight to the point. I think these technologies are just trying to imitate nature and try to imitate nature in the sense of like just en- enhance at best uh, our sensory capacities and make us travel, make our senses travel to different places and different times. Of course, augmented reality has, a, has is just kind of an added layer on reality. But if you think about it, and uh, when you think about especially the meditative mind, right? And when you think about eventually the, also the, the enhanced mind, let's say through psychedelics, you see the complexity of nature and you're like, wow, what an amazing thing we have around us and how amazing it is to be alive and to feel what we already feel from the naturality of our bodies and how they function, right? And so our bodies... Our senses are highly evolved interfaces to interact with reality, with the world around us. And they are so amazing that I think that the best thing that AR and VR can do just is like helping us realize just how cool we are already. Because there's a risk there, which is that, you know, creating this yeah, virtual reality in a sense, like, you know, this parallel reality that is not connected, that is not humans connected with nature, that is not humans part of nature. And and there's a a very big risk that I see there, which is that we may go into a a field of evolution and it's okay if some humans decide to go that route because they're disillusioned with the world. But if you see nature, if you see how beautiful it is, how generous, how magical everything is around us, and, and you get to understand and be wise enough to see how beautiful it is, you don't need augmented reality. Like the three of us right now, and whoever is listening right now is having a multisensory immersive reality experience. You can add a layer of virtual in it, but why do you need it? What are you looking for? What, what, what part of you is, is, is empty and needs filling with something that is a, an artificial layer? What within you is not able to reckon the immense beauty and the paradise that we live in on this planet. And so I think at best VR and AR can help us be better humans with the earth. And that's my hope because it could go the other way. And, you know, it's the matrix. And that's, you know, <laughs> perfectly perfect example of a virtual reality experience is you become 
a freaking battery, living in some kind of plasma, breathing artificial air and sucking artificial nutrients through your belly and are connected to a machine that is creating a reality where you will think you are aware and it's actually a simulation, right? So yeah, that's that's danger, I think. And, and this is where the magic of storytelling and bringing the matrix on, on this conversation is really special. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I love this. I love this so much. And it's it's a fun parallel because Mani and I, we've been, we are working in the Web3 space and in the metaverse. deep in the metaverse <laughs> and mm-hmm. noticing how people are getting so excited about these very utopic virtual universes, really. Mm-hmm. And then we, we take ourselves out of that space and <laughs> immerse in nature and, and wonder at the just ridiculous beauty that we're surrounded by. So yeah, I I resonate with what you're saying and I really hope that others are able to experience that. But if, if someone is struggling to reconnect with nature, Charles, what, what do you think is the most powerful tool for rewilding ourselves? (laughs) Beautiful, beautifully said education. And, and I think it's, we need a revolution in education because right now we're we're not empowering humans, young humans, to become the fullest expression of what a human can be. Just think of sexual education, food education, emotional education. All of these things are not included in the K-12, in the basic education of humans. Mm-hmm. We are very much still injecting a system of education that is pretty much, you know, postmodern industrialized. Right, it's it's like this industrialized machine that we want to like Taylorism and Fordism, right? It's it's creating you know a humans that can do a job, counting, reading, delivering on time, staying silent, uh, raising your hand before speaking. I mean, come on, you know it's like patriarchy education. So we need to shift from that. And what is a more feminine type of education? Where is a more connected and mother? like nourishing type of education? Well, it's rooted in play, probably. It's rooted in exchange with elders and intergenerational wisdom, just like it was in our villages and our ancestors. You would learn, your your parents would be out doing the work and you would be home with the elders, learning from them and playing with them. And it's also great for elders, right? The fact that we have a whole kind of generation of elders right now with their wisdom, you know, kind of in, in caring homes, by themselves, alone. What a way to die, right? What so if we if we connected the kids with the elders? That is what education will be about. I hope. So, what's the most transformational thing that we have? I, I think it's 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 stop thinking short term, think long term, and try to think of the three decades ahead of creating a new way of educating on what it means to be a, a good human being. And then maybe through that process, we will figure out these value systems that we, we say kind of are missing for, for truly thinking about, you know, ethical ways of being, especially when it comes to, to food systems. And yeah, and when we talk about food, we're talking about life. I mean, food is life. Uh, we can't live without it. So, so yeah. It's so, yes, it's when you, when you pair it back to the education side of things, it's like, wow, how do we just flip the pedagogy. And I mean, like considering I'm, I'm thinking right now of your experience living, working, breathing at freaking Oxford University. How was that actually quite a, like a wake up call for you? Has, mm. did that, did that really contribute to your 
education awakening of of sorts. Oh yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. And you know, I don't want to. I don't want to say that. I mean, we've humans. We've been through a lot, right? And we've been through, and we've done some really amazing things. Like if you think about the science that has that has us where we're at today in the past four centuries, scientific method. I'm not talking about kind of science in the kind of tricky. You know, there's a lot of tricky things in science, right? Who funds the science with what interests, etc. But if we go to the back to the roots, to the theoretical, philosophical roots of the scientific method, uh, and what it has given us and empowered us, it's wonderful. So for me to be, you know, I, I was, <laughs> I was. I mean, people would look at me really weird at the experimental psychology department. Like, what's a chef doing here? Like, the people would look at me, like the corridors are like, that's just a weird guy. And so, and yeah, and I was, and and, and it was interesting, and I was so humbled to have had the mentorship of uh, an amazing scientist, Professor Charles Spence, uh, who opened the doors of his lab and who believed in my ideas. Uh, and it allowed me to to develop, you know, and end up publishing, you know, over a dozen papers on, on multisensory science without even having a degree. And, and, and so the point being that there's a lot there that is happening. Oxford and, and some of these uh, universities have been around for almost a thousand years and are, they are temples of knowledge and wisdom. Uh, and I'm not saying that's not working. I'm saying that it's just natural that it will evolve. And I think, uh, especially when it comes to being more comprehensive and less siloed in our thinking and in our disciplines, like we need the chef to talk with the plant scientist, to talk with the medical doctor, to talk with uh, the engineer, to talk with the computer scientist, because that's where innovation lies. That's where that's where the magic of of us and the true potential of our of our species lies. Is different levels of wisdom exchanging, mm-hmm. and the way some universities are designed is basically on like siloing because we need to focus in order to go deep into understanding one field, and that is necessary. But then. As much as we focus and take the microscope, we need to take the telescope and look far, far away and take the bird's eye view of like, what are we trying to do here? Because a lot of the science that we do, forgive my French, is not really useful. You know, it's, it's, it's just there for science for science's sake. And when we're facing a climate crisis and a pandemic, uh, and I would say like uh, the UN got a report out recently saying that we're actually entering the era of pandemics, right? Wow. Um, so... Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it's not, we're facing all these things. We can't do art for art's sake. We can't do science for science's sake. We can't afford that. That's talk to me about ethics when we're trying to do things that are not at the service of, you know, solving hunger, solving problems of, you know, and of, you know, embedded justice in, in, in the way the world works and, and systemic racism and systemic oppression of people or planet. And so, yeah, I think that I, I, I want to believe and I want to be optimistic in that the interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary, multisensory approach to the experiences and the, and, the, and the knowledge exchange can really provide the best solutions that we not even aware are possible yet. And, mm-hmm. and that's exciting. That's Damn. galvanizing, yeah. to say <laughs> the least. <laughs> I Yeah, one big word. It's like intersectionality. How can we intersectionalize basically everything? And what we're seeing, working more on Web3, at least that is a really whew, optimistic part of it right now is that I think, and you can, you can see this playing out in even NFTs, for God's sake, that there's a real strong focus on, on the intersectionality piece. So it's... Whew, it's so, so key that we also think about that in terms of, as you're saying, all of the layers around food and climate 
and justice and mm-hmm. and 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 i wonder you know when you came to new zealand for the final table and there was a piece that the new zealand media picked up on which was you talking about hey it's important that we actually eat with our hands again I'd yes. love you to share your thoughts on that and how <laughs> that can be a super galvanizing trigger for people too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, sometimes the truth is so evident that we even forget that we have evolved for, you know, two million years as the form of humans and for, you know, <laughs> many more millions of years to get where we are. The most evolved tool that we have to eat is our hand, right? There's how much wisdom is there in a freaking five-finger hand with an opposite thumb? <laughs> it's just like so magic, right? It's, it's what makes us human in, in part. And then we design, and then a queen comes, the Italian court, and wants to do a fashion statement because she's wearing these big colors, right? Caterina di Medici. And, and, and everything around the court, the court was really the social aspects were all around food. And she mm. couldn't reach her hand with this big color that she wanted to wear as a fashion statement. So she asked the court and, and, and her people to develop this little trident that it looks like the one that they have in the, in, in the farmers have, right? Because it's so poetic mm. to use something farmers mm. use. Uh, and so, but miniature ones, they, she could grab her food uh, and very elegantly put it in their mouth. And so the fork was born. And then today, if you think about it, so... This Catherine de Medici got married with, with Louis King in France and brought the fork to the court. Everybody loved it. And then when they cut the heads of, of, the, of the kings in the 18th century, the people at the court were like, well, you know, what are the protocols we want to use to do this? And the restaurant was born and restaurants started using forks and then forks became. And now how many millions of forks are there on the planet? Like almost in the Occidental <laughs> world, everybody has at least a dozen. In their drawers? So many, yes. That's uh-huh. a that's hilarious a technology. <laughs> that's a technology that has evolved for, that hasn't evolved in 200 years, that was invented as a fashion statement that disconnects us from the sensual experience, the rich temperature, mm-hmm. texture, you know, softness of eating with hands. And pretty much like 2 billion people, like a third of humans today still eat with their hands for a good reason. Right, we're thinking about Asian cultures and, and Middle Eastern cultures, uh, you know, India, and and that's kind of, I think, you know, some like a mistake that the Occidental world has done, and, and and a legacy, a monarchic legacy that is in everybody's drawer, without us realizing it, right? So, to me, like that's kind of hacking the system is just saying like, hey, why are you in the first place using forks, right? Eat with your hands. Like the only use I see for forks is eating pasta. Right, the rest of it is like you know. Even then, you can probably you can eat with pasta with your hands too, <laughs> or with or with chopsticks, and it's going yes. to be yes. so nice, so pleasurable. And you're probably mm-hmm. going to eat less because you're going to get more, more a richer sensation. You're going to be full of the richness of the sensation and the experience more than the amount of food that you put inside your body. So that's why you kind of have a, a design project that plans to rethink the way we interact with food through science and art inspired eating utensils. And we're actually collaborating with a, with a major kind of honey brand in, in New Zealand to with this honey spoon that we have developed that is inspired by the shape of the finger. And so anyways, that's a long, that's another a story for another podcast eventually. Oh my gosh. <laughs> if we could just like cross pollinate that though, that would <laughs> love to dive into some honey chat. Honey Big honey bees over here. Honey to the bee, literally. But wait, 
Wait, wait, just does this does this actually relate to you and your father having been a beekeeper? Like you've grown up with honey being a cool part of your life. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to answer with uh, a quote from Charles Eames. He says, "Eventually, everything connects. People, objects, ideas. The quality of the connections is the key to quality per se." So, <laughs> It just so happens that, yeah, I have a, a, a beekeeper dad and I'm a beekeeper myself, I guess. I've been for 10 years learning the the, the art and craft of, of of keeping bees happy so we can take some of their bounty that they capture being the reproductive vector of uh, the vegetable world because they, they are kind of, you know, literally, that, that that's proper cross-pollination, making sure that, you know, sex between plants happens. And in the process, as a side product, we get honey, propolis, pollen, some of the most magical medicines earth has to give us oh my gosh i just <laughs> can't agree more in fact i am known as a honey honey beer to the point of just like destructive honey consumption <laughs> in the house anyway but if you think about it honey is and bee products are the only food organic beekeeping is the only food where you're actually doing a positive impact on the planet uh, it's the most regenerative food that you can find because when you're consuming honey, you are actually supporting people who keep bees happy, right? Because mm-hmm. if they don't be- keep their bees happy, they kill them, right? And some really unethical beekeepers do that on a mass scale. But good beekeepers and good beekeeping is essential for regeneration. And any regenerative expert, and you, you both know this, of course, but it's, it's such an important animal. And we have so much to learn from bees, even the way they think and live. Yeah. Buzz, buzz, buzz. Hey, I would love to know what we've talked so much about food and climate and all of the intersectionalities there. Outside of that, what lights you up the most? Or oh. one of the things that lights you up? Oh, there's so many things to be grateful yeah. for in this life. But I would say that, uh, you know, community, Sangha, right? The, the, your people, being with your chosen family around a fire, singing, dancing. I think that's that's the thing I live for. And something I would, you know, after, not after this pandemic, I mean, I think we're, we're in for a long ride yet, but I do hope that we can create a world where more people can find their tribe and, and just celebrate being alive on a more, more on a daily basis, not just once a year for birthdays and, and, and you know, mm. uh, whatever celebration we put in. But, but yeah, I think that's, that's really what fuels me. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> what, what does community actually mean? to you now as in over this past year have you rethought what community is or what kind of lens you want to look at community through for for oh yeah i mean we're we're about to face maybe the greatest mental health crisis in you know in our history right isolation you know this this friend isabel benke she's a, a primatologist an amazing amazing woman who studied bonobos for for over a decade and, and, and at the beginning of the pandemic, she published uh, an article in Spanish on BBC saying that by observing the way animals behave when they're secluded in captivity, she predicted that humans were going to start becoming more aggressive. They were going to start becoming more depressed, suicidal, because that's what she's observed in most animals when they are confined. That's exactly what's happening to us. The amount of aggressi- aggression, the amount of polarization, etc., is just growing. And we are not even capable... We don't even have the tools as, as societies sometimes to even realize that we're having a mental health issue. So how has this changed me? 
I think the thing that I missed most in, in the past year and a half has been being in community. And it has accelerated my, my passion and my drive towards finding a home because I've been mostly geoflexible and nomadic for, for five, six years. And I, I yearn for land and I yearn for living in, in, in good relationship, living in integrity and surrounded with people I love and admire. And, and, you know, and I think that's, that's something that's been lived in many of us and something I'm definitely looking forward in the coming years as soon as possible. Something I thought was going to be like, oh yeah, after 2030, let's take care of the SDGs first, focus on whatever. And then one day I'll be living in the, you know, nature. And I'm like, no, this, I mean, where, where do we start? Let's, let's, let's get to it. I so agree. It's like accelerated <laughs> massively exactly. the sense of, no, live it today or like do it now. We, we literally do not know what's, what's ahead of us around the corner. And therefore it's, yeah, that, that, that like pulse yeah. and it's also it the happen. most the most powerful i think political statement we can all make is around food sovereignty and also empowering anyone especially marginalized communities to to take to take their power back uh, with food sovereignty with you know being able to grow their own food because that's really basically reconnecting to the earth literally physically and disconnecting from a system that is sick and that needs changing. And when you pair that with an intentional community kind of aperture, then it becomes super damn powerful. And we could have, <laughs> yeah, just decentralized communities that is food sovereign. And then from our position of privilege, right, I would mm -hmm. say that us here, even, you know, the three of us, and of course, I think most people listening, we have an immense amount of privilege if we're able to take some time off to just listen to the and, and get into these conversations, right? So from our position of privilege, what systems can we prototype as fast as possible that can eventually be integral solutions for people who, and for communities and also respectful of, of and inspired by our ancestry and inspired by modern science, which is the mother of technology, right? Uh, and then And then just kind of, there's something really special. I really feel like we're living moment zero in the earth is now. Of course, we're, you know, 2021 is the the, the, the birth of 2021 years ago, the birth of a prophet. And, and we're all based, we base time on that. I mean, that's how kind of, you know, I, I think we have a new time starting now. It's our responsibility and we can eventually create a different way of being on this earth that none of the prophets of the past and, and, and humans of the past had had the access to um, the information, the technology, the wisdom, you know, Hubble telescope allowing us to understand our place in the universe a little bit more. And then we have a time to create a moment zero for the earth. And that's, I don't know, maybe I'm getting a bit too, too woo here, but there's something mm. really interesting to think that we're actually living in one of the most important, I think there's no doubt that the 21st century is one of the most important turning points in the history of this planet. And we Absolutely. are the architects of that change. Mm. Yes. Mm. Big yes. Charles, as a as a prophet of the delicious evolution, so to speak, what is your favorite flavor to experiment with? Oh, wow. Favorite flavor to experiment with. I will say the first thing that came to mind second. And the first thing I would say, yeah, I think honey. I think the diversity, nectar, right? Nectar. It's like every single drop of honey is different. And for that drop, it took like mm. how many thousands of flights back and forth for one bee to produce maybe a drop of honey in her, in her whole life. Right? Mm. And 
the flavor of it is amazing. And the other thing, when you said what's the favorite flavor, is like, Kiss is also really interesting, right? Because it, it does taste so funny, even though it's not sweet. So go figure. <laughs> I, I'm so here for the honey chat. Like I, the fact that we actually have a box of honey in our in our kitchen right now mm-hmm. that is from our parents' hive as well and just seeing like experiencing the the rawness of the comb and like working with the honeycomb has just taken it to the next level and right. also the fact it's it's like a stamp of time it's a moment in time captured in this little honeycomb yeah. capsule yeah. i think it's phenomenal <laughs> in that sense yeah. too Oh, yes. Big honeybees here. We we are just, it, this conversation is delightful and we could go on forever, but conscious of time. So we're going to slide into our super lightning rapid round and we'll give you two, two options per question and pick one as fast as you can. So Marnie, okay. kick us off. Alrighty. Guatemala or Costa Rica, if you had to choose, if it really came down oh, to Oh, Abia Yala. I'm sorry. I, 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 I'm not respecting the rules. Wow. Costa Rica. Costa Rica. Okay. What about the French Alps or the Andes? <sighs> Andes. Ceremonial cacao or really sustainable coffee? Cacao. 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 Always. <laughs> Papaya or sapote? Oh, these are so good. So hard. (laughs) Olive oil from Italy or Spain? Italy. Meditative sound journey or a techno rave in the jungle? (laughs) (laughs) Sound journey. And in three words, how would you describe the vibe of Charles Michel? Food, fire, heart. Food, fire, heart. Beautiful. Mm. That's fuego. That is fuego for sure. Mm. And thank you so much for sharing your heart and what's what's so evident in your heart with us today, Charles. It's um, oh, so grateful for you too, Blaze and Marnie. It's been it's been a pleasure, and I look forward to to crossing paths and, and dancing um, somewhere beautiful mm. at some point. Let's get to that fire. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> get to that fire soon. Beautiful. Kakiteano. Much love. Thank you. Woo. Oh, me, oh, my. Wow. Wow. What a honeycomb of cross-pollinating intersectional thoughts flying all over the space that was a remarkable combo wow charles for global food president i say yes please yes Mm. please i think so what's really sticking out for me is this universal basic nutrition like why why do we not have more dialogue about that because that seems so obvious actually now that you know diving into all of what that could entail and the empowerment mm-hmm. piece and the sovereignty piece. And look, we just need to decommoditize nature, as he was saying. Mm-hmm. It's like a real critical point mm-hmm. for for mm-hmm. the world and society to evolve in the right way right now. And that our food systems and education around our food systems is so key when it comes to rewilding and reconnecting to nature and understanding that 
incredible intelligence of nature、mm. and how we can work together and support each other. Right. Whoa, yeah. I completely agree. Speaking of the intelligence of of nature, also tuning into the intelligence of us as humans. Hashtag hand tech. Like how <laughs> freaking wonderful are our hands? And why did forks even evolve in the first place? Oh yeah, 16th century French history. Do we need to still revert to that now? I don't think so. No. Hand、New、tech. I'm all、baby. about it. <laughs> What do you think? Would be the funnest thing to eat with one's hands. <laughs> God damn! Bloody great question. Okay, first thing that pops into my mind is, and this isn't necessarily easy, but like a real slippery hunk of beautiful glossy kelp, fresh from the ocean. <laughs> I really wasn't sure where you were going there, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, seaweed.、Mm. Yeah, slime me out. Slime it up, homies. All right. Speaking of slime, this isn't slime time.、Um, this is honey haze time, if anything. So we're just going to buzz off now into our honey haze of home harvested multi-floral honeycomb magic. Ha!、Mm. Lovely. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. We are so jazzed to share beautiful tilter stories with you, like today's. So please sing out if you want to hear any particular topics or people from across the globe. Flick us a DM on Twitter, email hello at supertilt.club, and please sign up to our newsletter. It's dropping weekly, supertilt.substack.com, and you can subscribe to this beautiful podcast too. Share with a friend, you know,、mm. share with your grandma. Why not share with those bees buzzing around your hive? And we're on Clubhouse, yes, we are. So you can find us there, Super Tilt Club. And of course, all the links are in the show notes. So please go out, use this as a source of insight for how you can tilt harder into the spaces of Web three, of impact, of nature. Yes,、mm-hmm. you're a rad, super fucking awesome human. See you next time.